You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. everybody. This past Friday, just a few days ago, uh, around five o'clock, I was feeling pretty tired and I decided to take a nap. Uh, I walked over to my bed and I made the mistake of opening my phone. Uh, I caught a quick text message from a member of this church that said something like, a secret service agent just came into my office and asked me if I knew you. <laughs> my blood pressure immediately spiked Uh, I have not talked to any Secret Service agents in forever, and my mind starts racing. I'm thinking, did I say something bad about Joe Biden? Is there something that was misconstrued? Uh, I live next to Bernie Sanders. Did Bernie finally call somebody because he's hearing noise on Wednesday night? And so I get on my phone, and I'm trying to lay down, and I just text, what? And uh, this lovely member text back. Uh, this agent came into my office and he, he said he knew you and you invited him into the church. And I'm thinking, oh no, that definitely never happened. I have not talked to a Secret Service agent in forever. And uh, so quickly, I say, forget text. I got to call this guy. And so I'm laying in bed and I, my nap is over. I call him and uh, you know, he works with Secret Service a lot, so on the one hand, it wasn't too weird, but on the other hand, it's definitely weird that some agent would just randomly drop my name to this guy. And so uh, I'm freaking out. We're both trying to figure out who this was, and he couldn't remember the agent's name, and I didn't know who he was talking about. And so we get off the phone, some time goes on, and my brain is just at that, at that point is down a rabbit trail of fear and paranoia and all other sorts of things. And so I'm thinking, oh, no, uh, the government is trying to, to set this guy up and me up or something, and I'm just all of a sudden you know, completely paranoid and, and down a rabbit trail of no return. A few minutes later goes by and he texts me back and we find out it's a really old, old friend. Uh, all is well, but I was totally freaked out. Now, I mentioned all of this this morning because this morning we are talking about the topic of fear and more importantly, the topic of courage. As believers, God has called us to a life of courage, to face this life with courage. Courage meaning doing the right thing, saying the right thing, being the right thing, or thinking the right thing, regardless of the cost. Strength in the face of pain, of grief, of conflict. Individually, we need courage as believers to live out the particular calling we have as Christians. And collectively, we need courage as the church to live out the unique purpose we have in Washington. But we all know fear is a very real thing. It can paralyze us. It can dominate our thoughts. It can turn us into cowards. It can, it can enslave us. One pastor out in Sacramento recently tweeted, Pay very close attention to what you let scare you and why. Anyone who can command your fears 
does command your whole life. But in Christ, as believers this morning, God has set us free from fear. He commands our lives, he controls our destiny, and he rules this universe. And this morning, we'll see this big idea in this wonderful passage of Scripture that through Jesus, we can find courage. By walking with Jesus, by knowing him, by drawing on his strength, we can face the battles ahead. And so that's really my main idea, the big idea of this passage. It'll be up on the screen, and that's this. Jesus Christ is our courage. Jesus Christ is our courage. Now, my outline is going to be up on the screen, and it essentially is going to flow right from this passage of Scripture. Uh, Here at uh, King's Church, we believe the Bible. I know it's out of order. Uh, uh, I know that drives a lot of you crazy, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. We believe the Bible. We try to say what the Bible says, how the Bible says it, and so uh, our points are going to flow right from the text. Number one, we're going to see some examples of courage. We'll see what I'm calling paper, rock, and scissors. As mentioned, it's out of order, but it's a good way to remember a little bit about what happens in this passage. And then number two, we'll look at how we find courage, particularly in one verse, Acts 23, verse 11. Now, as always, before we dive into this particular passage. Some of you have not been here over the last few months. Uh, Some of you, you're just uh, checking us out for the first time, and so perhaps you need a little bit of a refresher. But as a church, we have been studying the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts is essentially the origin story of the Christian church. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and for 40 days, he's with his early followers, and he's teaching them, and he's uh, commissioning them to be his spokespeople, his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what we see in the beginning chapters of Acts is that God's Spirit comes down, and the Spirit empowers God's people to go be his spokespeople, his witnesses, uh, his uh, assistants to the world. And as we read the pages of Acts, we see at first the gospel starts in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden it goes out to the neighboring regions and then to the whole world. Now, particularly in Jerusalem, the message of the gospel is received quite well. Uh, We see in the pages of Acts thousands and thousands of Jewish uh, individuals becoming Christians. But it's also received with a lot of pushback. Uh, particularly among the leaders of the temple. Now, the temple was essentially the centerpiece of Jewish life. Uh, And the leaders of the temple were essentially scandalized by the fact that the Messiah was Jesus. He didn't fit their particular categories. Now, one of the leaders of the temple is this guy named Saul. He's from the close-by city of Tarsus, and he worked tirelessly to discredit the Christian movement. He was entirely effective. He was educated. He was smart. He was ambitious until one day he meets the Son of God on the road to Damascus, and his life is turned upside down. His entire life is rocked, and he becomes probably one of the greatest enemies of Jesus to one of the greatest spokespersons for Jesus, 
one of the greatest missionaries of all time, and eventually goes throughout the Roman Empire and starts hundreds and hundreds of churches, which really brings us to where we are today. Back in Jerusalem, the the Jewish Christians are struggling with food shortages, and Paul is very passionate about the church's unity. And so he starts a fundraising campaign, as a good pastor would do, among all the churches that he started, and they pool their money, and the plan is that Paul and some other representatives are going to sail from Greece, where they are, all the way back to Jerusalem and to bring this gift. Now, as he's on this boat, as we saw just a few weeks ago, he's on this boat and all of his friends are telling him, do not go to Jerusalem. Uh, This is a level four dangerous place for you to go. Paul, you're going to get in trouble if you go to Jerusalem. But Paul, as we found out just a few weeks ago, he is very stubborn. He's committed to go to Jerusalem. For Paul, it's very personal. Jerusalem is the place where he used to bully and harass and arrest, and even in one instance, kill early followers of Jesus. And now he gets a chance to go and serve followers of Jesus. For Paul, it's personal because this is the place where his Lord, where Jesus himself suffered. And now Paul has a chance to go and suffer alongside his Savior. It's personal. And so Paul, he goes to Jerusalem. And just as was predicted, he gets spotted he gets identified. Uh, a mob comes and, and they uh, uh, harass him. But then some Roman soldiers, we found out just a few weeks ago, some Roman soldiers come and they rescue him. Uh, they break up the mob and he's brought inside this barracks and he gets a chance to speak on the steps of that barracks and he begins to share his testimony. He begins to share about the message of the gospel, that Jesus is the son of God, that he's been raised to life and that salvation is for all people. God has a heart for all people. And just as he says that, the crowd freaks out, which brings us to where we are today in Acts chapter 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, that is the Roman commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So the Roman soldiers, they kind of rescue him. I guess you could argue that they bring him in and they want to flog him. They want to scourge him. This is very painful. This is what happened to Jesus. It was basically torture. Uh, A Roman centurion would tie someone to a pole, and they would take this whip out of bone or metal, and they would whip the prisoners back, and it was just very painful to, to get some type of confession. Essentially, it was very ugly. It was torture, which really leads us Uh, They're about to do this, which really leads us to our first little example of courage, what I'm calling paper. Acts 22, verse 25 will be up on the screen. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. 
Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So just as he's about to be interrogated, just as he's about to go under the whips, figuratively, he slams his papers down. He pulls his Roman Empire passport, and he says, I am a citizen. Uh, This claim essentially would have been very easily provable by public records in Tarsus, a nearby city. And legally speaking, if you were a Roman citizen, this was very powerful. Uh, This causes the commander to freak out a little bit. Roman citizenship was very effective and powerful back then. Essentially, you had more legal protections under Roman law uh, if you were a citizen. It was illegal for another Roman to scourge or uh, to flog another Roman uh, unless there was due process, unless there was a fair trial and a fair sentencing. They could have gotten into major trouble for that. Uh, They could have lost their jobs. And so Paul figuratively pulls his papers. Uh, He slams his passport down, and he uses the strength of his Roman citizenship to protect him. Essentially, he's not being a martyr if he doesn't have to be. Uh, he's not suffering if he, if he doesn't have to be. He's not looking for pain if uh, he doesn't have to. Now, the obvious application for us this morning from this little example of courage is that as believers, we shouldn't be afraid to appeal to the law where it's wise and good. Uh, One commentator calls the last few chapters of Acts the judicial journeys of the Apostle Paul, and he's doing just that. The point is, is that if there are laws on the books that can help prevent unnecessary pain or injustices, we should utilize them. It's not unchristian or weak to use and utilize the courts. And specifically in this country, our courts are still pretty good. Uh, I could get deeper into this, but we're really starting to trek into the world of religious liberty and civil rights, but you get the point. The passage continues, and we see a second example, what I'm going to call rock, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Many of you know this. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. That means starting out young, we go through tables and chairs and all sorts of other instruments. Growing up, uh, my friends, I would often uh, have my friends over on the weekends, and uh, I made up this game I called Fighting in the Dark. And essentially, the rules were, as soon as the lights went off, there was no rules. It was a total brawl, no gloves, nothing. You just survived as long as you could, uh, as long as the lights were off. 
Uh, you know, I'd often, when the lights came back on, you'd see guys with carpet burns and blood uh, and broken things and, and so forth. It was pandemonium. It was nuts. It was crazy. Now, what would often happen is that guys would go through the drywall. And um, I, I learned pretty quickly as a 16-year-old, as a 17-year-old, how to patch up drywall. Except the problem is I'm very bad. Uh, I am not a very handy, I'm not a very handy person, we'll just put it that way. Uh, I was very bad at patching up drywall. Uh, you could tell that it was uh, not so well patched up. And so, you know, even just recently, uh, uh, Sam Trippy, I had to have come patch up drywall. And then Colin and, and Caleb, you guys, you guys came and fixed it up. But essentially, you could see the damage uh, on the drywall. And uh, my parents would always know because it just looked so fake. And in this passage, Paul is throwing a verbal rock. Uh, he is brought in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is essentially like the religious supreme court in Jerusalem. And the leader of this court orders him to be punched in the mouth. But Paul throws this rock, and he basically says his character is basically like a badly repaired piece of drywall. He says his character is like a poorly painted piece of drywall. He basically says to the high priest, he's fake. He's saying he's a hypocrite. He's saying that he appears to love God on the surface, but his life contradicts God in all of its entirety. It's a verbal rock. To put this a little bit more lightly, as Buddy the Elf says in my favorite all-time movie to Santa Claus, Paul is saying to the high priest, you sit on a throne of lies. But then notice what happens. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Verse 5, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So essentially, Paul catches himself. He regrets what he just said, but only because he didn't know who he was saying it to. He probably didn't know Ananias was the high priest. He was likely not in Jerusalem for about 20 years. Maybe some say his eyesight was bad. In the book of Galatians, he's writing in big letters. Perhaps his eyesight is going because he's getting a little bit old, but he catches himself making this comment because he knows it could have been taken as kind of a dishonoring the office kind of thing, which means he would have been written off as a witness there in the court. Now, the application here for us is, again, pretty straightforward, and it's this. As believers, God has called us to courageously imitate Jesus in our speech. And the words of Jesus were marked by both gentleness and boldness. Jesus was both tender and fierce. He loves the little children, but he also casts out the demons. He heals the sick, but he also takes a whip and drives out the money changers from the temple. He speaks patiently and lovingly, but at times he speaks direct and sharp. It takes courage to have this balance. It takes the gospel working into our hearts to be both a lion and a lamb in our speech, to know when to be silent and trust God, or when to be direct and bold, to risk it and to trust God. The action continues, and we see a really a third example, what I'm calling scissors. Verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
But when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So this is a very strategic move. He brings up his party membership in the religious sect of the Pharisees, which he never does. Uh, his, his cause is, has basically been ruined in the court. He's thrown this verbal rock, and he's essentially somewhat discredited himself. It's also likely ruined because Ananias is presiding over the court, and Ananias was a pretty bad dude. He realizes it's pretty pointless to try to convince the court. He was deeper in, we might say, than he intended, so instead of going further, he divides and conquers. Howard Marshall, a biblical commentator, says of this passage, what Paul does here in a space of about five seconds practically was unbelievable. He says, Paul went from being a passive party seized by two different groups, almost killed by one and about to be punished by the other, to being the central agent in control of the embroilment. What he means is that Paul, within a couple of seconds, uses his wisdom, he uses his courage, he uses his language skills, and he turns the court in on itself. They'd come together to condemn him, but by God's wisdom, they're now coming apart because of him. Now, again, one relatively loose takeaway here is that the truth of the resurrection will always divide. Paul says, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He knows the gospel is a divisive claim, and he uniquely deploys it here to get himself out of a very tricky situation. And the reminder for us this morning is that the gospel still is a divisive claim. It still divides today. Some may try to spiritualize it like the Pharisees did in this passage. Others may just laugh it off like the Athenians did early, er, earlier in the book of Acts. And others may just outright reject it like the Sadducees did here. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ still remains the power of God to save. For all who believe God raised his son from the dead, God can change your life. He can resurrect you and give you new life. The text now says Paul gets pulled back into the barracks, verse 10, and it's been a tough couple of days for Paul. This has probably been one of the hardest days of his life thus far. For years, he had hoped to go back to Jerusalem. He had hoped to give a strong witness in Jerusalem. He'd ho he had hoped he could have made a very good case about Jesus to the leaders of Jerusalem. But all of that went up in smoke. The dreams of being an effective spokesperson to his fellow Jews were at ashes at his feet. This is a guy whose heart is aching physically, emotionally, spiritually. He was tired, which really leads us to our last point. 
where we can find courage. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I want to spend the rest of my brief time this morning just talking about why this is such a powerful verse and how we can find courage. Three things. Number one, the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him. The Lord shows up and stands by his side. In the moment of his exhaustion, his tiredness, his heartache, his defeat, Jesus Christ shows up. And in that moment, Paul is reminded of not only who Jesus is, but who he is. He's reminded of his own identity. Now, on the one hand, that concept of identity, who you really are, is the moral absolute of culture. It is the moral absolute of culture today. It's the only thing our culture would say actually matters. You've got to be yourself. Not many people are arguing with that. But on the other hand, this concept of identity is also at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. At the end of the day, Christians aren't just people trying to be better people. Christians are people who've received a new identity. And here's what I mean by that. The traditional view of identity in more maybe we might say conservative cultures or maybe even more Eastern cultures The traditional view of identity is you get your identity from your assigned role in your family and how well you live up to that role in your family. So you're a daughter or you're a husband, that comes first. That's your assigned role. And how you perform in that role gives you high esteem or low esteem. It's about who you are, the traditional view. It's about who you are in the whole, who you are in the family. Your worth is based on how you've either fulfilled or not fulfilled those particular expectations. Uh, This view is seen in a lot of samurai movies, a lot of old American classics where self-sacrifice happens for the sake of the family. But the modern view reverses that. Uh, The modern view of identity, which is rampant in this country, in this culture, in this world, is that you get your identity from expressing and living out who you think you are. It's not about an assigned role or about how you've played that role. It's about looking into your heart and living out your dreams, living out your desires, no matter what anyone else might think. And how you perform living up to your dreams and your goals gives you either high esteem or low esteem. It's about who you think you uniquely are And your worth is tied to how you've either fulfilled that or not fulfilled those self-expectations. And as mentioned, this view is in just about everything today, from Disney movies to Frozen to poems. Being unique is what counts, is what we hear. Now, both views are basically the same thing. Both views are based on achievement. How you live up to your family's expectations or how you live up to your own expectations, they're both based on performance, on achievement. 
your rightness, your worth, your esteem is tied to how you are doing. But with Jesus, with Christianity, it's totally different. Your identity, your rightness is received. It's a gift from God. And when the Lord shows up, Paul is reminded of that truth. He's reminded of who he is. His primary identity didn't come from achieving or not achieving who he was supposed to be. And his family, he was in jail with nothing. His primary identity didn't come from achieving or not achieving who he thought he was uniquely supposed to be since he was a kid. In this moment, he was defeated. He was reminded his primary identity had nothing to do with achievement. It had all to do with the grace of God, with the gift of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning in the gospel, if you want to know what the heart of Christianity is all about, in the gospel, we receive a new identity. In the gospel, God takes our sin, our worst defeat, and he puts it on Jesus. And he puts his righteousness, our greatest validation, he puts that his approval on us. That means achievement is not ultimate for those of us who believe. It means even if you think you've achieved, perhaps in this room this morning, you still don't have the praise of the one who is praiseworthy. Human achievements and human failures for the Christian don't have the last word. None of that makes us righteous. The only thing that makes us righteous is receiving the very righteousness of God, the very praise of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that gives us a stable identity, an identity that can never be taken from us, an, an identity that can never be lost, a solid core. And Paul certainly was reminded of this truth as the Lord stood by him in all of his pain. Number two, the Lord is for us. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Jesus not only stands by him, but he speaks and he says, take courage. Paul is beat down. He's a human. He's, not af he, he's afraid that he's not going to make it to Rome. But Jesus tells him, he speaks, he says, take courage. He says, take hold of the courage that's in him. God is so, so, so for him. Paul later writes to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. And this morning, a good question you might ask yourself, how do you know this? How do you know God is for you? Well, the answer is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Something happened in history. And if we ever doubt when pain comes into our lives or when grief comes into our lives and we wonder, is God really for us? The answer is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Be confident again. Be assured of God's love for you demonstrated once and for all that he is really so, so for you. 
What he's done in the past empowers our future. Take courage. He is for us. And number three, the Lord is not finished with us. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul was probably at the end of his rope here. And maybe he think, maybe he thought he would never make it to Rome, as I mentioned. But Jesus is not done with Paul. There's still more for him to do. And the same is true for us this morning. If you're breathing and you know him, Jesus is not done with you. He's got more for you to do. There's more hope. There's more light. There's more truth. There's more impact for you to make in your workplace, in your families, in your home, in your neighborhood. Some of those situations might be hard, but he's with you. He's for you. And it's worth it because he cares for us. Verse 11 really reminds us here of the truth that God knows where we are even today. Even if we're hiding it from everybody else this morning, God knows where you are. Paul was alone and discouraged here in verse 11, but Jesus appears to him and reminds him he's never alone. Earlier in the book of Acts, the Lord frees Paul often from prison miraculously, but in this moment, the Lord appears to him directly in jail. It's a great reminder that while we often demand Jesus get us out of circumstances, he often wants to meet us right in our circumstances. It's a great reminder that surrendering to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean escape. It means he wants to, to meet us and whatever we're facing in that moment, to remind us we're never alone. And it's there in those moments where we find courage through him, through Jesus Christ, who is our courage. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.